0: So this morning, we are jumping into Acts chapter 4. We're going to wrap up this chapter. So grateful to Tim for preaching last week while I was out. He looked at the first 22 verses. And so this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, looking at verses 23 to 37. So it's our practice. We would just get into books of the Bible, go through them verse by verse. And so it's so helpful to have the Word in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible... The tables in the back, there are some paperback ones. You can get up, grab one of those, all right? If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. The other option that you have is get, it, get out your phone, go to cpwp.life and swipe over. You'll see a card that says message notes. The text, things that are up on the slides this morning will be there as well, space for you to take notes. You can email it to yourself afterwards, a good way to be able to follow Along. But I want to go ahead and read all of this section um, so that we kind of just understand kind of where things are going and then we'll make our way back through it. So as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as we read God's word this morning? Acts chapter four, beginning in verse 23. Here's what it says. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together, it was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there's four words as this text gets started that gives us some context to what has been happening. So to kind of catch you up to to speed, it would be helpful to start here. When they were released... Luke's writing this account, and he tells us when they were released, when the apostles, when Peter and when John, when they were released. And this is giving us a bit of the backstory. It's connecting us to what took place in the first 22 verses of chapter 4, going back even a bit further to chapter 3, when we hear about like, all the things that had transpired with the healing. And so to catch you up to speed, here's what had gone down there had been a man who'd been, he's over 40 years old, he'd been crippled since birth, he's laid outside of the temple every day just begging for help, begging for money, for alms to help him out, and Peter looks at him and he says, you know what, I don't have money, I don't have anything I can give you financially, but what I do get, what I do have, I give you, so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be healed, stand up and walk. And the man miraculously is healed and he stands up and he goes into the temple and he's like leaping like a deer, all right, just like fulfilling this great prophecy and he is Uh, proclaiming the goodness and the greatness of King Jesus. And it, as you can imagine, like there's some talk now, like what in the world is happening here? And so the religious rulers of the day who are bent on keeping their tradition alive and the temple and all that end up arresting Peter and John and they bring them in and they have this trial and they're told, you are no longer to speak about the name of Jesus. Jesus. Peter's like, uh-huh, that, that, that's great, uh, I hear what you're saying, but I serve somebody greater than you, so you've got some authority, but guess what? Um, we're gonna continue to do this, so thank you very much. You can bring your threats, you can bring your persecution, uh, but we serve a sovereign, good king, his name is Jesus. You're not Jesus, so I'm gonna listen to him, not you. All right. And so that kind of gets us to where they are. So they're, they're released, All right, but they're under this threat of they could con- have continued persecution, maybe they're gonna be arrested. And let's not forget, it was just a few weeks earlier, that the same group of people had their leader, Jesus, killed. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that this could happen to them. But it says when they were released, and then we look at the passage that I just read, and what do we notice? There's this boldness still. They're proclaiming the word. They're speaking of the resurrection of King Jesus. They're serving one another. Uh, we'll get to this in a, in a little bit as well, but isn't it fascinating? They're praying like, Lord, will you continue to heal people? Like if I'm them, I'm thinking, all right, this person got healed. We got in a lot of trouble. Maybe we shouldn't pray for that to happen, but they've got no issue with it. They're like. We need more of that, Jesus, all right? So there's this boldness. And what I wanna wrestle with together this morning is this, to work through this question. What what characterizes, that we see in this text, a life of this kind of continual, ongoing gospel boldness? What do we see here in the text that would inform us about what would it look like to have our lives be characterized with a gospel boldness where there's a willingness in both word and deed to proclaim Jesus is awesome, Jesus is magnificent, come what may, like we're on team Jesus, we're with him. So what would, what would help us? What would fuel that? What are the things that we could engage in? And I think there's much to teach us in these verses here about what that would actually look like so this morning, we're gonna approach it this way. I believe there's three movements that we see in these particular verses. All right, we'll look at three movements um, that we see, and the movements are upward, downward, and outward, okay? So now you know where we're going, all right? But the first thing that we see is that there's this upward movement. So, again, they're released. They literally just got out of jail, and they come together. Now, let's look at the very first things that they do like what do they actually engage in when they were released they went to their friends all right so they go to their community hugely important all right they're not in this in isolation they're not just you know by themselves they go to the community they go to the fellowship they go to the friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them and when they heard it they lifted their voices together to god what's happening here The very first movement that we see from these men who've just been released is they get the community together and the community rallies together and it's not to strategize about the best ways to go about this. It's not for them to actually think through, okay, well, we better better shut this thing down. It's not just wallowing in fear. What they do is they gather together and they direct their hearts and their attention upward. They engage in prayer. So they get out of jail. They've just been persecuted. There's all these things that are taking place. They're under constant threat and the very first thing that they seek to do is we gotta have a prayer meeting. We gotta get together, we gotta pray, and we gotta plead, and we gotta ask the Lord to work. But even in the prayer, what we're gonna see is it's not necessarily, I'll, I'll speak for myself, it's not the way I always pray. Like I'm pretty quick to just jump in when I, when I do pray and it's petition, like right away. And God does love to hear that. It's not knocking that at all. But there's some things that we can learn in the prayer because at the end of the day, I think it's the right focus that actually fuels this this boldness that they have. And so how do you and I respond when we're faced with difficulty and challenges in life? Is our first inclination to say, hey, we we need to pray about this? Maybe not just pray in isolation. There's nothing wrong with that. But also, do you invite other people into it? Do you text some friends? Do you say, will you pray for me in this? Do you call a meeting and say, hey, come over to my house tonight. I just, can can, can we pray together? What would keep us from doing that? Like, we have the amazing opportunity to do those things, but I'll be honest, for me, I'm reluctant sometimes to do that. My wife is very good about this. Something will come up, we should pray about it. And I'll say yes, and then I'll keep talking about my ideas or my problems or my solutions or my whining. That's usually how it goes. And she's like, hey, you said we were gonna pray. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's go back to that. My first inclination isn't always to pray, but what we see here, what fuels this movement of the gospel is the people that direct their attention upward So look how it starts. Again, it's not just bringing their petition and their request, though we'll see some of that. Look at verse 24. So when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and here's how they start. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The very first thing that they do is they declare, God, you're sovereign. The language here is such, this word that is used that gets translated as sovereign, is the idea of a slave to the master. It's the idea of like, you have complete control, like I am at your beck and call, like I, you, are, you are ultimate and, and I'm not. And it's this recognition. If that seems kind of hard language, but there, here's the reality, like everybody is serving something, all right? You can either be serving the God of the universe who actually brings freedom, or you can be serving other people, other expectations, reputation, whatever it happens to be, and that thing will actually enslave you. And they're like, you're sovereign, you're king, you're glorious. And so do you notice what they do? In the midst of hardship, attention directed upward, and they say, you're the sovereign Lord. They're reminding themselves, you're the one that's made everything. You're the one that's in control. They go back to creation, all right? You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're getting a sense of God, you are big, you are vast, you are majestic, and we are tiny. We are small, we can't, we are the creation, we're part of that, like we're not the creator, like that's your realm. And this is what we all need. You and I need to be reminded of the greatness of God and not our insignificance in the sense of that you're not worthy. No, no, like you have worth and value and dignity because you're made in the image and likeness of God. But at the same time, there's a smallness here, like God is God and we're not. And so. Attention is directed upward, and they start by reminding themselves. Do you notice? They didn't say, God, will you take the threat away? They didn't say, God, help us with not be so afraid. It's almost like they're they're praying in, like they're they're bringing in the confidence by directing their attention to God. They don't read a self-help book, they're not Googling the solution, right? They're like, you're the sovereign Lord, and so their attention is directed upwards. And then it continues, look at verses 25 to 28. They begin to then recall what I would say, this recognition that they are part of this really big, epic, monumental story. And not just them, here's the reality. We're here this morning because there's a sovereign Lord. And you and I are part of a big, monumental, epic story. And so look what verses 25 to 28 say. They begin describing, it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then there's a reference back to Psalm chapter 2. So maybe you see that sort of indented in your page there in the scriptures. And it says, It's this reference back to this ancient psalm. It's regarded as a messianic psalm. It was speaking of the time of when Jesus, the Messiah, would actually come. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, they were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. So all the way back in this ancient Psalm, there was this recognition that when the Messiah shows up, the leaders of the world, those that are in power, are going to work against the Lord's anointed. And so as they're praying, as they're directing their attention upward, God, you're sovereign, they also are situating themselves in this story. They're like, ah, we've seen Psalm two actually take place. We've seen what David spoke about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there would come a time when the rulers of that day would work against the Lord's anointed. And just for a moment, can we do this as an aside? There's this tendency again to read ourselves into the scripture and be like, those wicked people, I can't believe they do that. Here's the reality. Like I conspired in this. Like, this is, like am I, I have guilt in this, all right? I was gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I was part of the crowd that would have said, crucify him, crucify him. That's the reality of the human fallen condition, is that we contributed to the death of King Jesus. That's a hard word, but until we understand that, we actually won't have the freedom that God has for us. That we're part of this big monumental, this epic story. And so they're situating themselves. They see God as sovereign and they're like, listen, there's this story that's been written and they understand that, okay, this is historically what was, you know, it was, it was promised would take place and it has. So verse 27, for truly, now they, they're connecting the dots, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So who's the Lord, who's the anointed? It's Jesus. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So all of these groups of people, that oftentimes hated each other and wanted nothing to do to get with, with one another, somehow were unified around one thing. Let's get rid of this Jesus guy. That's what they were united around. And it says, but this is so key, verse 28, to do whatever, not their hand or their plan. You notice the language here? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That yes, as the scriptures speak of, there is human responsibility. Yes, Jesus was put together, put, put to the cross by the, the plans that came together of like lawless and wicked men. The blood is on their hands, it's on my hands, it's on your hands, like that whole thing is true. And yet, this sovereign Lord that we rule, that we worship, that's ruling, He is the one who orchestrated it all. By his sovereign plan, Jesus was actually put to death to bring about redemption. And so as they pray, they remind themselves of who God is and they remind themselves of the story that they've been swept up into, that they situate their, their suffering and all that in the midst of, okay, but God is bringing about redemption. If God can use the death of his own son, He can certainly work in your situation and my situations and the situations that the apostles found themselves in. They're like, okay, we have to understand we're part of this bigger story and it's heading somewhere. Those are really profound words that are being spoken there to do whatever your hand and your hand had predestined to take place. One commentary I read this way, said it this way. It says the doctrine of predestination is meant to bring assurance to God's people of the final victory God has over his enemies. So yeah, we're meeting at 9.30 and let's talk some predestination for a moment, I right? just get your mind going, all right? So the doctrine of predestination meant to bring assurance to God's people, the final victory God has over his enemies. Unless we can be certain of this, we cannot entertain an assurance of final salvation. If the future is contingent, ultimately, upon the fickleness of our will or ability, the possibility of assurance is actually impossible. This is a doctrine that is not meant to be understood so much as believed. It is designed to strengthen and to embolden. So I think it's important to talk about this, not so we argue about this thing, but to see this is one of the truths that is communicated in the scriptures and it's meant to embolden us. God, everything is a part of your plan. Like you are working all things together for good. It doesn't mean that we don't have real sin and problems and things to repent of, but God is so sovereign that he even brings about, he works salvation through the death of his son. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about it this way. Think about it as we think about the story we're part of. The cross, an accident? The cross, a surprise? The cross, something that might not have happened and that need not have happened? The cross, merely something that God uses? No, he says the cross was planned, foreordained, before the world was ever created, before man was ever made. God had planned the death of Christ his son. This is the explanation, and these first believers had seen it. So Luke is simply reporting, this is all according to the power of God. And they're simply witnesses to it. They're situating themselves in the story that God is sovereign. Is that the God that you know? To the extent that you know God is sovereign, as the one who's working in and through all situations, that will actually embolden you. And then verse 29, there's this posture then they have that they are actually servants, like 29 to 30. And here's where some requests begin to be made, all right? And so they say, and now, Lord, please look upon their threats and grant to your servants, so here's the request, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it's fascinating, this upward movement. God, you're sovereign. God, you're writing this incredible story. You're ruling over everything. And then even as they make their requests, it's not, God, please get us out of the situation. It's not, God, will you somehow just make things better or easier or cushier or whatever it happens to be. They're not praying for comfort. What are they praying for? Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand, as I said before, to heal. They're asking for more healings to take place. The very thing that got them in trouble. All right. We want to see more of that. Oh, and healings, how? Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that needs to be proclaimed. And so they are dialed into this. It is this upward movement and this focus that exists. And so let me ask you, how do you evaluate your life? How do I evaluate my life? Are, are we bringing things to God immediately, or are we trying to deal with it in our own strength? And oh, we got this, and in just a moment of desperation, maybe we'll offer up a prayer to God. Their posture was, God, you're sovereign. God, we need to situate ourselves. We need to see where we are in the story to be reminded of how gracious and powerful and good you are. Do you have to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to know that, that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he pursues you, that he's got a plan? Because the enemy thought that they had triumphed over Jesus, right? They looked at the cross as their sign of victory, and Jesus, and as, you know, as God, is like, huh, yeah, you think that. you got about three days to think that, but then I'm rising again, and that is going to be the symbol of ultimate victory as it's paired with the empty tomb, right? Like, that is the God that we worship, and so there's this upward focus But as we get to verse 31, I put it to you this way. I think what we also need is this a second movement, it's downward. What I mean by this, to explain this, is we need this ongoing work of God to to show us, to empower us, to remind us of his presence. I think that's what we see in verse 31: is God saying, Hey, I am hearing your prayers. And so look what happens in verse 31. It says this: And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So their prayers result in, and we'll talk about this more at the end, all right, an earthquake. Things are shaken. And it says that they're filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is like moving towards them, that that is the story we see in the scriptures. It's the story of Jesus, the God-man who came down to us, who lived a sinless life, who walked on this earth, fully God and fully man. It's the story of the Spirit, as Jesus ascended up, that he sent the Spirit to come down to empower us for this mission. Like, you and I can't be the witnesses we're called to be apart from the work of the Spirit. And so, this raises a question, though, for a moment. Like, maybe you're thinking about this. Okay, so were they empty before, right? like if something needs to be filled like you're you know you're driving your car around you notice it says e all right and some of you're like oh that can go like 50 more miles and some of you're like no we need to pull over now but wherever you are on that spectrum right like eventually you get to that spot and it's like okay it's empty it needs to be filled up so does this then is the logic there like okay well they they there's somehow the holy spirit had like vacated it left the building they're actually empty i don't think that's it's it at all the scriptures are very clear that the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in him, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. Like you didn't have, the. if you're a Christian, you didn't have the Holy Spirit yesterday, but somehow, you know, today he's like, oh, he just took off for the weekend. He's out at the beach. He's not here with you. No, the Holy Spirit is taking up residence in your life if you're a follower of Jesus, okay? it's always with you. So it's speaking of something different here, and I think this is key for us to understand. I was reminded this week of a book I'd read probably some eight or nine years ago called Keeping in Step with the Spirit by the theologian J.I. Packer. And in this particular section of the book he's talking about what it means to be filled with the spirit like what is that actually communicating and he was walking to a night service where he was going to be preaching at. and apparently as he tells the story he was seeing the church building off in the distance probably ymca or something like that right and so he sees this this building out there and it's it's nighttime and as he rounds the corner, he looks, and the building is just beautiful. I don't know that this is his building, but some, this sort of thing, if you can, can see that. So like there's this building that's just sort of lit up in the distance. Now, what is his focus in that moment? His focus is, oh, look, look how beautiful the church looks at night. The focus is not on the floodlights that are illuminating the building. The floodlights are serving a purpose, this uplighting that's there, right? Some of you are into that, your landscaping looks amazing, got all the uplighting, hitting the tree just right, like it's, what is it meant to do? Not to call attention to the, wow, those are some amazing floodlights. No, look at what it's pointing to. And he says in that moment, he's like, oh, that's a perfect illustration, he said, for what he was talking about that night about being filled with the the spirit. It's this idea of the floodlights, the spirit, showing up and shining the light in such a way that, that we see the beauty and the wonder and the magnificence of Jesus in maybe ways that we haven't seen before, and it emboldens us. And it's not the experience of every single day. We don't have that, but there are those times where the Lord chooses to work in such a way, all right, and we can pray for this and ask for this to happen, that the floodlights come on, we're filled with the Spirit, and we see the beauty of Jesus. And so Packer says it this way, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not in fact supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. We need this sort of downward movement of God, you could say, where God, through the, the Spirit, is filling us up, moving towards us in so a way that like the floodlights begin to shine and we begin to see Jesus in new ways. Maybe a way to think about it is this experiencing the realness of Jesus, but it's a realness that's always been there. I've used this as illustration before, so some of you have been around for a while, you've heard this, but it's, it's okay, it's the best I can come up with, All right, is the experience of years ago taking a group of students and we were inside of a cave in the mountains of Tennessee and we were in there for multiple hours, All right, and so as we journeyed around in this cave um, and it's just utter darkness, right? It's like there's darkness you know, and then there's the like, I think your hand is in front of my face, but I have no idea, like you just can't see anything unless you had your headlamps going and then emerging several hours later out of the cave and walking out into this canopy of trees and the, the sunlight coming through and the blueness of the sky and to have that experience of like, oh my goodness, the green of the leaves have never looked so green, the blue of the sky has never looked so blue, the white of the clouds has never looked so white and you're just this kind of feast for your eyes and you're just like taking it all in. Now, the reality is, all of those things were exactly the same when I entered in but you have this experience every now and again right of like oh you're seeing and appreciating in new and fresh ways I think that's what's happening here the floodlights are coming out and they're filled and it emboldens them and what it does then is it leads then to this third movement is that one of the ways then that we would know like hey how, what characterizes the life of continued boldness upward needing the movement of God downward like toward us And then what also characterizes the life of boldness is this outward movement. So look with me at 32 to 37. It says this. I mean, it kind of starts actually at the end of 31. They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. It says, now when the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. One heart and soul. Look at that. This is a diverse group of people, and this is the beauty of what the gospel does. It unifies us around what is ultimately most important. It doesn't mean that there was a uniformity. It doesn't mean that they vacated their personalities or their preferences, and they still, you know, some still cheered for Florida and some for Florida State or whatever, right? Like, those things still existed, but the reality was there was some bigger story. They realized, God, you're sovereign. There's this epic story we're part of, and that's what unifies us. So yeah, there's some differences, but they, they're coming together. And then look at this community, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're speaking this word. And great grace was upon them all because it's all fueled by grace, verse 34. And there was not a needy person among them. Think about that for a minute. No one had any financial need. That doesn't mean that everyone was just super well off and that never popped up. No, it means like when the situation arose, somebody had a need, it was resolved very quickly. People moved towards like, oh, God's moved towards me. I'm gonna move towards this person. Let's look what it results in, all right? It says, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what were sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then there's a particular example given here. Thus, Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that will set things up for where we'll be next week as well. But let's just look at this for a moment. In this last movement, I want to ask you, are you bold in word, because there's a call to word and deed, a call to speaking a word and being generous with time, talent, treasure, all of it. Let's start here. Let's not miss this, all right? The, the whole notion, sometimes, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words, I think misses it a little bit in the sense of, yes, we do good deeds, and yes, that sometimes earns you a hearing, and it brings some credibility to what you have to say, but at the same time, let's not shy away from the gospel is good news that needs to be heralded. It's not just from a stage with a headset microphone on, it's you and me talking about the things of Jesus. So are you bold in word? So maybe do a bit of an audit of, of your life, all right? Like, just ask yourself, like, how long has it been since you've had a spiritual conversation with somebody that maybe doesn't believe what you believe? How long has, has it been since maybe you've had a conversation with somebody about just what God's doing in your life or something that happened in your, your church or something that, you know, that God, God is teaching you? I'm not saying this full-on gospel proclamation. Sit down, I got a 40-minute message for you. I'm just talking about like, is it even popping up in the conversations at all? Evaluate your life. Like, how has it been? Like, when is the last time you extended an invite to somebody to say, "Hey, would you like to join me at church? Would you like to come to my community group? Would you like to study the Bible?" Like, it can be a whole spectrum of things. But I think it's helpful to say, as we read this, how do our lives line up? Is there Is there actually a boldness? And the reality is this. We will feel awkward. There will be a massive energy barrier. There'll be all these things that we're like, I have to push against, all right? And yet, what do we do? Attention directed upward. We see what God has done for us. We ask God to to fill us. Jesus, we want to see you for your beauty. And there's this reality that a life of boldness is characterized by this outward movement. Are you bold in word? But then also we see what? This incredible generosity, are you bold in deed? The language we like to use around here is, are you seeing yourself as an owner or as a steward? What's fascinating here is it's a whole bunch of owners in the passage that don't see themselves as owners. They own land, they own homes. The Bible's not against you owning those things. The Bible's against you being owned by those things and viewing yourself as the ultimate owner. The reality is they've been given to you and to me to be stewards, to be used for God's purposes. And what we're seeing here at the end of Acts chapter four, you know what, this beauty that they're they're seeing Jesus, it's making them open-handed. They're like, ah. Yes, this is costly. Man, I'd rather hold on to that, that home. I'd rather, I mean, think about this. I, I missed this this week and I was studying it again, yes, you know, like yesterday afternoon, I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I just kind of moved past this. They didn't just, you know, oh, we've got this old rickety chair, let's throw that up on Craigslist and, and give the money. Great, start there. They sold their house, right? Like, I, I wish that wasn't in there because I don't know what to do with that, to be perfectly honest. I'm like, well, I just bought a house. Do I got to sell it? Like I, but here's the reality. Again, God is not anti you having those things, but my question becomes, are you, are you holding them loosely? Are you stewarding well what the Lord has given to you? What if you use the things that the Lord has given you to help with the first one, to actually speak the word with boldness? Maybe it's that. Maybe he didn't give you a home so that you would sell it and give all the money to somebody. If he's calling you to do that, great. But maybe he gave you a home so you would actually invite your neighbor over and get to know them and talk with them and maybe have a moment of boldness where you get to know their story and they get to know yours. I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like and I'm thankful that we're part of a church community here. You guys have done a great job over the years of rallying together and there have been needs. And sometimes it makes it all the way to the elders and there's a benevolence fund and things like, like that that we can engage in. And sometimes I find out many months later that, oh, well, no, our community group just took care of that. That person, they needed groceries they needed this bill paid or whatever, beautiful. That's what's happening here, right? And I love that. Let's, how do we fan that into flame? And the way that that happens is not through guilting, Oh, I gotta run out and do that, all right? Like, if I noticed this week on Facebook, every one of you are selling your house, right? I'm like, oh, they, they took the message in a different direction, right? But there is this call, like, are you seeing yourself as an owner or steward? Maybe another way to think about it is this. Are you hoarding or are you helping? And by hoarding, I mean this. Some of us are guilty of hoarding the message the good news of Jesus. It's literally like us saying, oh yeah, I've got the cure for cancer. Oh, you have cancer? I'm sorry, I I don't really feel comfortable sharing that with you right now. Well, when it comes down to it, that's really what it is. And I'm implicated in that, all right? Sometimes we hoard the good news. we, We hoard our time. That is a very valuable commodity in our particular cultural context, right? How are you doing with your time? Do you view it as your own? Are you an owner of time or are you a steward of the time that's been given? What about the talents that you've been given? Like you... Yeah, there's abilities and there's things and there's uh, like you hone your craft and you do all that, yes and amen, but at the end of the day, if God didn't give you those propensities, those abilities, those talents, like you don't have any of it, neither do I. You're a steward, you're not an owner. Are you hoarding your talents? And what about treasure? Are you actually just keeping it or are you actually giving it away? Does it actually hurt? Like that's, that's the call. We want to get hung up on percentages. Okay, we can talk all of that, but at the end of the day, is it sacrificial generosity? And the way the apostle Paul handles that is he says, hey, let's look at Jesus. He didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. So where are you at? That's how the conversation usually goes. It's like, wow, let's look to what Jesus has done. But at the end of the day, I think there's something that's here and Tim Keller talked about it this way. He says one of the reasons, it's not about stinginess, he says this, one of the reasons why we don't give more of our money away, and I would say any of our resources, time and talent as well, it's not stinginess, it's fearfulness. At the end of the day, it's not a stinginess problem, it's a fearfulness problem. So unpack that a bit. We think we need those things, particularly money, if we're going to be okay. And Jesus is asking you, like, hey, do you believe that I'm actually enough? Do you believe? And here's when we understand who Jesus is and who we are in Christ, it drives out fear. Romans 8, 15 to 16, for you to not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself then bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. To the extent that you know that you are a child of God, you will be bold. You'll be bold with your time, your talent, your treasure. You'll be bold indeed. You'll be bold in word. When you understand at the end of the day, this is what the apostles understood. The rulers of the day, they're gonna bring persecution, they're gonna bring pain. Most of these guys are gonna die for their, their faith. And at the end of the day, they didn't have any fear. Why? because they know who they belong to, they know where the story that they're situated in, that it one day ends with everybody confessing that Jesus is Lord and some are doing that and rejoicing and some are doing that out of terror because they're separated from their maker and the rest of the, follow, the followers of Jesus actually get to be with him in his presence forever. Every tear wiped away, Jesus ruling and reigning. That's the story you're situated in and when you understand that, when I understand that, there's a boldness. First John 4, 18, there's no fear and love but what? Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You know what the beautiful good news in the gospel is? Jesus was punished in your place. There's no punishment coming for you. And when you understand that, that actually drives out fear. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because what? Fear has to do with punishment. And Jesus was punished. So let's conclude with this. Verse 31 Look back at that for just a moment. This movement of God. They prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you notice this? The place was shaken, and they're filled. The place was shaken, but they're not shaken. The foundations were shaken. They're enduring an earthquake, and yet they're filled to be more bold. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but if it starts thundering too much, I'm just like, oh, the world's ending, right? Like, you might have one of those, those moments. They're dealing with the foundation shaking, but it doesn't shake them, it shakes the place, yes, but somehow they're emboldened. Well, what in the world's going on here? How is that actually possible? And the reason it's possible is this. Here's what I want to conclude with. I want us to, to see is that they're living in light of two earthquakes. All throughout the scriptures, the, when the presence of God shows up, all right? Or when people ask for it, all right? Like Moses says, God, I wanna see your glory. God's like, no, you don't know what you're asking for, bro. Like, if I showed up, like, I would crush you. Because the glory of God, the, the imagery there, the, the, the language is its weightiness. It's so weighty, it would crush you. It would literally come down and it would shake everything and it would just destroy everything. It's Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah gets a glimpse of this this vision of God, his grandeur, his majesty, his his beauty. And what ends up happening? It tells us that the thresholds, the foundations were literally shaking. There's all this smoke and this noise. And he's like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's like, I am lost. I'm literally completely coming undone. Like that seems like, oh, how cool he got to experience that. Isaiah would be like, no. Like it terrified me. Because the reality is when the presence of God shows up, it shakes Everything. And then we get to Matthew 27. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives up his spirit and the temple, the the curtain in the temple is torn, and there's this darkness over all the land, and it tells us that the rocks begin to crack, and that an earthquake, everything began to shake. Why, what was happening? That the presence of God was coming down, the wrath of God was coming down, and it was shaking Jesus to the point where it destroyed him. Earthquake number one. You read one chapter later, Matthew chapter 28, what happens? there's another earthquake and the stone is rolled away. And now we've got an empty tomb and we've got a risen savior and we've got the God of the universe who said, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna die the death that you deserve. And three days later, I'm gonna rise again. Like this has always been my plan and my purpose to bring glory to God and for your joy so we could be part of the family. Like when you and I understand that the earthquake took place and it shook Jesus all the way to the point where it put him into the grave for you and for me. And then there was a second earthquake. And guess what happened then? It shook death to the point where it killed death. Death no longer has the final say, and you and I live in light of two earthquakes. So I wanna give you a moment to respond. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. For one, examine your heart. Take into the quietness. We're gonna give you just a moment here. What, What fear are you holding on to? To repent of your fear. And I want you to ask the Lord, make the request before him to give you boldness. But I think that boldness comes as you rejoice in the fact that you've been loved by the God of the universe, that he's pursued you, that he died for you, that his holiness and power, like it didn't crush you, it crushed Jesus in your place. Like that's the story that you're part of. And during this time as well, and I just want you to know, because this is kind of a new thing for us, but I'm so excited about about this as well, is during this time and through through the continuation of the service, all right, Maybe you noticed it when you came in, maybe you didn't. There are two banners in the back corners that just says, need prayer. There'll be people, you'll notice them and they'll have a little lanyard on um, to identify them, but there'll be folks each week that are back in those corners to pray for you. It's not just during the song that happens with communion, it's through the duration of the service. If at any point you want somebody to pray with you, to pray over you, to join you in prayer where you're just like, I can't even get the words out, can you just pray for me? Whatever it looks like, will you go? God would love to hear from you. And as the church family, we would love to engage in prayer with you. It's there. These people are there to serve you, to pray over you. God works through prayer. So maybe today the bold move for you is like, you know what? I want to try and fix this on my own, but you're going to not believe that lie. You're going to put that to the side, and you're going to get up, and you're actually going to walk back there. And you're gonna say, okay, I don't care if people see me needing prayer. Oh, well, they think I'm needy. Here's one here, let me leave in a secret. We're all needy, we're all jacked up, we all need lots of prayer. And so just go and ask for it to humble yourself. Direct your attention upwards. Let me pray. Let's give us some space. As the worship team comes back, I'll tell us how we're gonna continue in the service in a moment. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth that this perfect love, it drives out fear that we've been perfectly loved by you through the finished work of your son through his life, death, and resurrection. And God, I pray that you would hear our prayers now, the Holy Spirit, that you would be at work bringing conviction of sin, that we would be convicted of our our lack of boldness, our lack of belief in the story that we're part of, that, that we've been driven so much by fear. And so Holy Spirit, bring about needed conviction. And God, would you hear our requests now that we might be a people individually and collectively as the church that would have a great boldness, not for our name or for the name of Crosspoint, but God, for your name and fame and renown that more people might celebrate who you are. And God, as we continue to pray and sing and participate in communion and all of these things, God, would you remind us of the fact that we have this amazing story that we can rejoice in. That on One day there was a bloody cross and three days later there was an empty tomb and that we live in light of those two events, those two earthquakes that took place that literally have just shaken everything in your beautifully redemptive way. And so God, hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.